In John chapter 3, we read of a Jewish ruler who came to Jesus by night. When Jesus told Nicodemus that we must be born again, he was speaking in figurative language. Now listen to the plain language version of born again. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16, verse number 16. The born again illustration given to Nicodemus emphasizes the dramatic change that should take place in the life of those who obey the gospel of Christ. Paul says when we are baptized, we walk in newness of life. Romans 6, verse number 4. In Christ, we are a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 17. Born again newness of life, new creation. It has been said some people are born once and will die twice. Others are born twice and will die once. In just a short time, we're going to sing an invitation song. And we invite you to become a Christian. Or if you have any other need, that we can assist you with. We'll be glad to do that in just a few minutes when we sing together. We're going to continue our uh, Proverbs 31 series this evening for a short time talking about Sarah. But before, I want to thank all the men who have done the Wednesday devotionals. I've thought about doing this before, I just haven't done it. But these last few months, we have had various men do devotionals from month to month. Guys, you have done a great job with this. With those short lessons you've done on Wednesday nights, to hear your different thoughts and your different ways to deliver those thoughts. It has been good for our folks on our Wednesday, at our Wednesday assembly to hear your lessons. And our online folks, a big shout out of appreciation to you for doing that. Sarah was barren. She had no child. Now, I don't know if it states it specifically in the scriptures, but don't you think that Abraham and Sarah prayed for a child and prayed and hoped and desired and talked about this hope of having children in a culture in that culture back then, it was a negative thing for a woman to be childless. Having many children in that day was a symbol of good favor. 
how devastated Sarah must have been. Month after month after month, she failed to conceive. Maybe this journey to a new land would help Sarah escape the haughty looks from others who considered her less than a full woman. A new land, a new hope, a new name. Abram, Abraham, father of many nations. Sarah, Sarah, princess. Still, Sarah waited. She waited years. She must have known as her hormonal levels changed and her body reacted to that. I suppose at some point she realized it isn't going to happen. I am past the time when I have the ability to rear children. John Byron said this, childlessness is never presented as a positive or acceptable condition. Every story of a childless woman in the Bible is about how that situation is reversed. Socially, the position of the childless woman in the Hebrew Bible is ranked among the despised, the poor, the helpless, the widow, and contrasted with the mother who is blessed, joyful, and rich in children. Sarah had waited and waited and hoped. And I suppose year after year after year that that hope gradually seeped away the joy from her hope of one day having a child. Ladies, are there things that threaten to steal your joy? Do echoes from the past whisper your name? Those angry words you spoke that are keeping you an arm's distance from someone that you care deeply for. The hope that you had at one time in life, that hope that was dashed time and time again. God was faithful to the promises that he made to Sarah. He is faithful to the promises he has given you. He promises you forgiveness, one for you by Jesus. When you are tempted to look at your circumstances, through the eyes of fear and doubt, when past mistakes slap you across the face, 
be encouraged by remembering who you are in Christ Jesus. You are a woman of God. Being a woman of God frees you to live a life of joy in him because your worth is far above rubies. Our Father, we again come before your presence thanking you for the privilege of being able to be here today. We thank you for the time of worship. We're grateful for the songs. We're grateful for the opportunity to enter your throne room in prayer. The excellent job in which our hearts were taken back to the cross as Andrew directed our minds regarding the Lord's Supper. And we're thankful, Father, for the lesson that we heard. Father, we pray that as we open our Bibles, we'll grow together and that we'll be able to say it was indeed good to be here. In Jesus' name, amen. Where's Jeff at? He's out. There he is. Oh, well, I was going to ask if you were going to be offended if I moved this. I'm a short guy. This is a little bit, little bit taller. I need all the help I can get. Open your Bible to the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to pick up there. And as we get started, just out of curiosity, might anybody be able to give us a, a recap? I know it's been a month, so it might be tough, but I know that uh, you probably know the book of Nehemiah and some of the background information. Would you like to share a recap? And if you wouldn't, that's fine. Okay, yeah, excellent. So you remember that when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. And, and Jerusalem, of course, was the capital of, of the southern kingdom of Judah. You had Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Um, Israel had been taken uh, captive by the Assyrians. Judah didn't listen to uh, God and didn't learn from their brethren to the north. And as a result of that, they would, in fact, have to go away into captivity. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem and destroyed the city, temple, altar, walls. And they were carried away into Babylonian captivity over a well, in three phases. And so you've got, I think, 606, 597, and 586 are the years on that. And then as Jackie said, when they had, they had been in captivity in Babylon, and over the history of the captivity, it would last 70 years, but they would start to come back in phases, Right? And so as they would start to come back in those uh, phases, I believe 486, 457, and 444, if memory serves me right, uh, they start to come back. And as they come back, they have different responsibilities. The first group that led God's people back from Babylonian captivity uh, 
was led by two people. Do you remember who they were? Zerubbabel was one. Who was the other one? Jeshua. Yeah, so, so Jeshua and Zerubbabel, they lead God's people back. And what did they go back to do? Yes, they, they, but that's not exactly what they went back to do, but that's what they accomplished, right? So they come back to rebuild the temple, but they weren't able to do that. Uh, as far as they got was the foundation. Uh, but in addition to the foundation, what did they establish? What did they rebuild? The altar, right? And so she's like three for three. So, I mean, <laughs> anybody else is welcome to chime in if you like, sorry, no offense there. I, I didn't get your comment in. Uh, so, why the altar? We'll see if you were listening this morning. Hmm? Sacrifice, uh, worship. Um, why? I mean, why sacrifice? Why worship? What, what was the significance of that? Okay. So it represents the church or a people, God's people, uh, the called out, right? Um, but even something else, I think. Okay. Um, so, something else. You guys are like all around it. True. Yes connection, right? So altar, I think I heard worship, I heard sacrifice, uh, but it's that connection, okay? They didn't come into a nice building, you know, white to uh, well-lighted building, comfortable pews, and all of that to come in and to worship, to be in God's presence, or they didn't go into a dark closet, close the door behind them, and get down on their knees in prayer privately, uh, just for worship. Now, they may have done that, but that, the connection, the worship connection, if you will, was done at the altar. And so the first thing that they did was they had to rebuild the altar because it had been desecrated. It had been destroyed. And now they're back home. And so here we have connection again. And they started the process of the temple, but the locals said, we're going to help you with this. And God's people, Zerubbabel, and Jeshua in particular, they said, oh, no, you're not. You have no part in this matter. And so they got mad. They uh, uh, pouted about it, and, and consequently, um, they had to cease the building of the house of God. And so before Ezra comes on the scene as the second leader, who do we, who do we go to for more information about the next part in the process. I think I heard it. No. <laughs> that was a good guess. Not a, not, a, not a major, but a minor prophet. Starts with a, starts with an H. Haggai. You said Haggai, right? Yeah, I thought you did. <laughs> so, so Haggai, right? And Haggai stirs up the people and says, you've got all the time in the world to build your house, but you don't have time to build the house of God. So 
he comes in, Zechariah comes in, they stir up the people, and so they get back to work and they build the temple. So that's Ezra, okay? So uh, Jeshua, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And what did Nehemiah come to do? Build the wall. Build the wall. So that's kind of where we left off last time. So Nehemiah, chapter 1. And I want us to be really impressed with verses 4 through 11. This gets me every time I read it. It's a really special text. And remember that here's Nehemiah. He's with the people of God. They're still in Babylon. They haven't made it back yet. Nehemiah hasn't led the people back yet. There's word that comes to Nehemiah, verse number 3, that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are burned with fire. Uh, just, let's just pause there for a second. Let's try to, let's imagine that we're Ukrainians for a second. And if you spend any time watching the news, this won't be far-fetched to do, okay? Because if you have a heart, your heart has been affected by what's going on in Ukraine. Imagine being in your house and all of a sudden you start to hear these sirens. And the next thing that you hear is the firing of weapons. Blasts. The house next to yours is completely demolished. And you run outside in fear and you just you run as fast as you can. You don't look back, you just run as fast as you can. You've, you've grabbed your family and, and you're gone. Or maybe you live in the city and You've got the fire coming into the city, the cannons fire coming into the city, and, and building after building, building has been hit, and the, 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 the stone just starts to fall. And you're in a shelter, the base of that, that building, and you don't know if you're going to make it out alive, but you do. And you get to a train, your family. You can't take your dog. You have to leave your dog behind your other pets, and you just get on the train and you go. You don't know where the train's going, and we heard that. We heard stories like that. We just got on the train. We had no idea where it was going, but we knew it had to be better than this. And they leave. And they get to, to Poland, let's say. And the, the news reporters are coming to them, and they're asking the just the... I don't know, it's, the questions are so dumb. But they are what they are. What was it like? They don't want to talk about what, what it was like. It was horror. But they do. They talk about it. They ask the counselor a question. How do you feel? How did it make you feel? Oh, horrible. Horrible. felt horrible. But they get through all of those interviews and they make their way to a tent 
And these tents, not only do they have food and, and some clothing and some blankets, maybe some cots and things like that, but they've got televisions. They have satellite access. And they're watching their hometown. And they're seeing how it's been destroyed. Now how do you suppose they're feeling? And what do you think they're thinking? And I think of Nehemiah. He didn't have satellite television. He couldn't see it physically. There were no TikTok videos. There were no Instagram posts. There were no Polaroid pictures that could be shown to Nehemiah and his counterparts. But they just heard about it. Now look at verse number four. And it came to pass when I, Nehemiah, when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. Every time I read that, it hits me right in my heart. They're talking about my hometown. They're talking about my city. It's been destroyed. The walls have been destroyed. Not just destroyed, they've been burnt down. The gates have been burned with fire. My city is no, there's no protection for my city. And he sits down. He doesn't stand and weep. He, he finds a place and he sits down. And then he, he moves from weeping to mourning certain days. And he's fasting. And he's praying. So let's see. He hears about it. He sits down. He weeps. He mourns. He fasts. And then he prays. That's his home. We're talking about restoring the residence of God. Altar, temple, the city, the walls, the residence of God. Now, not that God is literally in Jerusalem, but it represents his presence because of the temple. Where is God present today? Hmm? Okay. Yes, today. Where is God Where is God's presence today? In our hearts. Okay. In our hearts. The Word of God is said to, by the Hebrews writer, is said to be implanted in our hearts, which is different from the old law, which was written on stone. Don't overthink this. You've heard this time and time again. No? Where's the, presen- where's, where's the presence of God today? Yes, God lives in heaven, of course. In the In the church. The presence of God is in His temple. His holy temple. What is His holy temple today? It's the church. You have the physical temple of God in the Old Covenant. That represented His presence. Because you had the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark was represented His presence. And as the Ark was out front leading God's people from bondage into the land of Canaan, that represented God leading his people into, uh, into Canaan. 
But the presence of God today, the location of God's presence today, is in us, His people, the church, the kingdom. So then, the question for us as we make a correlation is not how can we build up the city of God, Jerusalem, how can we reestablish the temple? How can we rebuild the altar? Those things are irrelevant to us. But how can we build up the church? That's the question for us from Nehemiah. How do we build for God a great church? Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. God's the one who builds the church, certainly, Matthew 16, 15 through 18. But how do we do our part in, in building for God in the location in which we live a great church? How, how do you suppose, what is, what is the best way to get people to be converted and to come and be a part of the West Side congregation. What is the best way to do that? Any ideas? Establishing a relationship. Let me ask it this way, as you think about that. What, what is the reason why people come to the church in the first place. Why do people come to Westside? Or to any congregation for that matter, but why do people come to Westside? What did they see? Our lives? Okay. Okay, a, a, a piece of paper, an invitation of some sort. Okay, why do people come to West Side? Okay, there, there's something within themselves that, that says, "I need to go worship." I mean, God talks about that. There's there is something that God implants within us to serve something. Maybe we don't understand what the something is or the someone is early in our process, but but there's implanted within us this insatiable desire to serve something greater than us. And so maybe that's why they come. They're looking. They want to worship. Okay, good. What else? They trust the person that invited them. Okay, good. Why do people come through the doors to worship? They're searching for something, okay? To see the presence of God. All right? Anything else? What do you suppose that people, um, when they're looking for a church, they, they, they call the church building? Uh, what do you suppose one of the first questions they ask is? How many members do you have? What time? Okay. That's, that's, that's asked by a handful. 
Is that right? Very good. They must not have the internet. <laughs> be able to look it up online. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, what do you? What can you do for me? What can you? What do you do for the community? Right. Yeah. So, back to what? What do we do for the community? Do we help? Do we help people? You mean to tell you what? One of the the top uh, top questions that I've heard is and I, I don't know exactly how to word it but tell me about your uh, your uh, youth ministry that's probably the number one tell me about your youth ministry um, Jackie did you say the preacher I thought I heard that you mean to tell you what Tom Rainer said in his book, Surprising Insights of the Unchurched? He said that the number one reason why people come to church and stay has nothing to do with the preacher. It's not the dynamic nature of the worship. It's not what's going on in the community. It's not even the youth. But the number one reason why people come to church and stay is because a friend relationship invited them to come. And then they stayed. That was the number one. Now let me kind of go back to that original question that I asked. What do we do then to build for God in this place a great church? Yeah. Connection. Connection. I've discovered that it, it you know, I, I'm, I'm ready to take your bullets. I, you know, I'm, I've got my bulletproof vest on tonight. I've come to believe that it is a waste of time for the preacher to spend his days and much of his days at all in his church office. Things a waste. For Westside, the phone rarely wing, uh, rings during the day. Rarely rings. And when it does, there's an answering machine. Leave a message. People do email. Send an email. Or a text. Or they'll message on social media. So if they want to get a hold of some, they can do it. And there are plenty of ways of doing it. But from the minister standpoint, connection is not made in the church office. I work out of Chick-fil-A a lot. You know that. I've told you that before. Yesterday morning, um, Saturday morning, uh, I'm, I'm always up early, and uh, Emily texted me. I think by this time it wasn't, I'm not going to tell you the time because I don't want to, I might embarrass Emily, but um, I, I was at Chick-fil-A, and she texted me, and she said, where are you? 
I said, I'm at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I was working. I was working. I go to Chick-fil-A not because they have great chicken. I'm, I'm, a, I'm to be honest, I'm kind of over it. I'm over the chicken. I, I'm, it's, it's, you know, it is what it is. It's, it's chicken. Uh, and um, I don't even get a chicken biscuit anymore. I get a chicken, not McMuffin. That's McDonald's. I get a chicken muffin. Much fewer calories. A little healthier. Um, Jeremy's laughing up here. I get fruit too, so there you go. And I sit and have my coffee. And I get to make a lot of interaction that way. Now, that, that's just me. That's because, because I'm me. I'm, I'm local minister. I'm just speaking from me, my, my standpoint. I don't know what it's like to be you. I've never been you. I, I've, never, I've never lived your life and your business and your, um, you know, your social environment or uh, things such, such as that. So I don't know what it's like to be you, but you do. So how do you go about making connections, building relationships? So that's something to be thinking about. Because the next step is then, okay, come. Come and see. All right. Today, oh, we don't have time. Uh, today and the next two times we get together and talk about Nehemiah, I'm going to try to do this in like five minutes. Um, I want you to think about the ABCs of building for God a great church. And the first one is we have to aspire. The second is we have to understand the barriers. And the third one is we have to know something about the commanders. God left commanders in charge of his church, his body, to provide guidance and oversight into building for him a great church. There are barriers along the way. There are struggles, challenges, difficulties. But before we can even talk about that, we have to talk about our aspiration. Do we really want a great church? I mean, do we really want it? We talk about it. We say it. Do we really want it? Are we hungry for it? And if we are, what's it going to take? We could come up with a list. Okay? And the list would apply to uh, you know, differently to all of us, probably. Let me give you just two thoughts. That's all we've got time for. The first one is, we have to have a heart. We have to have a heart for it. The second one is, we have to have hands for it. And you say, okay, yeah, I get the hands part because Nehemiah was a bricklayer, so you're talking about going to work. Yes, but I'm thinking about a different use of the hands. I'm thinking about this. Are you with me, Mark? We've got to pray. Yeah. So we have to have a heart, and then we have to have hands. We've got to pray. Back to chapter 1. You see his heart. He weeps about the condition of God's kingdom. He mourns about it. He fasts over it. He prays. Now go a little further. And he said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, 
that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now. Day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants. And confess the sins of the children of uh, Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. I want you to notice, not the, not the hands here or the prayer here, but I want you to notice the heart. He's talking to God with all due respect to him. Not, not God is an awful God, but he's, he's, he's revering God. That's why he refers to him as great and terrible. He's revering him. But I want you to notice his heart's condition. His heart is broken up over sin. He says, I confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. There's no, no evidence to suggest that Nehemiah had anything individually for which he needed to beg God's forgiveness for. And yet he identified with the people. And he said, if they're guilty... God, I'm guilty. He had a heart for his people. We've dealt, we have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Speaking again on behalf of the people. And then he says, remember, I beg, I beseech, I, I implore you, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, uh, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. In the next verse he says, O Lord, I beseech you, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of the servants which desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servants, this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of, his, of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. I want to simply say as we, as we close, and we'll add to this next time, that if we're going to build for God a great church, we have to aspire. We've got to really want it. And if we really want it, it's got to come from our heart. We've got to be... We've got to be broken over where we've been, maybe even where we are, and say, I'm moving to something bigger and better. We've got to aspire to it. And then we have to have the hands. We have to talk to God about it. And it's possible that there will be occasions in which we need to have some repentance. We need to change our hearts. We need to change our minds. We need to... We need to decide. Maybe what I've called my priorities haven't really been my priorities. And I'm rededicating. I'm committing. Heart and hands. All right, let's stop there. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for the few minutes that we had tonight to open up our Bible and talk Nehemiah. We're thankful for the things that were written before time, were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scripture, might have hope.
Father, we're grateful that Nehemiah teaches for us a great example of how to build for you a great church. Not that we start it from scratch, certainly, because you built the church. We just have responsibility and roles to play within it. And that is to try to build her up from the inside, strengthen her spiritually and numerically as much as is possible. Father, we often limit ourselves. We limit you. We limit your power because of a lack of faith and maybe even conviction. And it's evidenced in what becomes priority in our lives. Not that things going on in our lives are unimportant or even wrong or sinful, but perhaps what we need to do is we just need to remember that life is about one thing, ultimately. And it's about preparing to go to heaven, and a huge part of that is helping others as well. Just like we talked about this morning, and being servants like Jesus, having the mind of Jesus, help us to do that regarding building for you a church here. Father, help us to have the heart for it. Help us to have the hands. Help us to talk to you regularly about the kingdom, about the church, about Westside, and about the role that we play in it. Father, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his kingdom. Thank you for letting us be a part. And it's through him we pray. Amen.